This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Monday, February 19th, and this was not the President's Day gift he was expecting. We start here. Former President Donald Trump adds a staggering dollar amount to his list of legal woes. $355 million for doing a perfect job. How this judgment affects his campaign and his bank account just ahead of the South Carolina primary. Meanwhile, did Vladimir Putin just have his top rival murdered? There is no longer really any kind of freedom of dissent. Supporters of Alexei Navalny are being arrested in Russia as they protest his death. And if there was a gold medal for going on strike, France might win it every year. Seems like every other month they're, they're protesting something new. But with the Olympics mere months away, more Parisian workers are saying non. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. If you're trying to keep track of all the legal cases against former President Donald Trump this year, at the top of the list, you'd put the criminal ones, right? Anything that could conceivably land a former president in prison would obviously be ground shaking. Right below those, you'd put his civil trials, the ones that would cost him money, even perhaps his business. Well, as far as the big civil trials this year, he's now 0 for 2. The case is a complete and total sham. It's a sham case. On Friday, a New York judge issued a ruling in the case of New York v. Trump, which alleged that Trump, his company, and a number of individuals below him had claimed Trump properties were worth more than they were to get better loan terms. The judge, Arthur N. Gorin, had already determined the fraud was real. The question here was how much Trump owed. And the number was huge. A judge in New York fining Trump $355 million in a civil fraud case for exaggerating the value of his properties, defrauding lenders. All you see is bitterness and revenge and hatred. Judge and Gorin just fined me $355 million for doing everything right. But remember, this is not just a former president. He's a current presidential candidate with the South Carolina primary now looming this weekend. He's a businessman who lives in Florida, who, by the way, started selling Trump-branded sneakers this weekend. You're sneakerheads, right? So when you're weighing dollars versus cents, civil versus criminal, political versus judicial, how much does all this matter to Trump and the country? Let's start the week with ABC's executive editorial producer, John Santucci, has been covering all these court cases. John, how significant was this one? Oh, hugely significant, Brad, because at the end of the day, Donald Trump's brand is his business. I mean, part of the beauty of me is that I'm very rich. His brand, his bravado, his image. Well, that image is what got him the White House. But now to have a court come out and say, well, wait a second, you're a fraud, that dampens Donald Trump's image. That is a really big blow to his ego more than anything else. A fine of $355 million for doing a perfect job. Donald Trump has five children. The business is like his sixth. Mm. And between us, it's his favorite one because it's the <laughs> one that he's nurtured. He's been around it the most. He cares about it. He brags about it. He shows people the properties, the real estate. I went on a tour once, Brad. He took me up to the 26th floor of Trump Tower, showed me the Plaza Hotel that he once owned. That was Donald Trump's 
M-O. And to think that all of that was living under this scheme, as the New York Attorney General alleged, and now a judge has ruled, that is something that I think just at the end of the day really upsets, infuriates, and hits Donald Trump at his core. Yeah, it seems personal. People have talked about how this seemed more personal than, say, like the Eugene Carroll case or some of these other trials. Um, is the bigger issue that he no longer has control of this iconic company, or is it the money? Like, he's got money to pay this off, right? Or does he? It's a great question. He's not a publicly traded company, right? So we have no idea how much cash he has on hand. I mean, you go based on him, he's worth billions beyond billions. Forbes right. says it's a much lower B. But nevertheless, he does have a lot of money. The question is how much cash? Because obviously, he's got a lot of real estate. He's got a lot of properties. So to physically write a check is a little different. He's obviously been paying a lot of legal fees for lawyers over the course of the last year. We've learned that from the federal um, campaign finance disclosures, Donald Trump has spent $50 million in legal fees in calendar year 2023. Like donors, that's donor money. That's donor money. That is small dollar donors writing a check and off it goes to, you know, lawyer, LLC, whatever wow. firm it is, because God knows Donald Trump has a lot of them right now. But that is different for when it's a fine, when it's a consequence. That's a major violation of campaign finance laws. So it's not like that same account can go to pay these bills because now he's got two big ones, right? The one that came down Friday night with New York State, and you alluded to the E. Jean Carroll case, which is 80 plus million dollars. I'd like to give the money to something Donald Trump hates. That's a lot of money and none sure Donald Trump has it. Now, you know, how does the business go on here? This is going to sound ridiculous, but hear me. The Trump Organization is a family business. It's always been run by somebody with the last name Trump. Donald Trump was the chairman and CEO of it. He ran for president. He left. People had to step in. It was his two sons, Don Jr. and Eric. Unfortunately, the attorney general has brought forth a case that is purely a political persecution. In this uh, ruling defense. Friday night, it says that Donald Trump cannot be an executive officer of a company in New York for three years. It also says his two sons, who were part of this lawsuit, can also not hold a title. Now, they got a little less, two years each for both sons. So the question is, who's going to do it? Because the only other person he trusted was his CFO, and that guy doesn't work for him anymore. What, what has been the reaction from Trump and, and I guess his kids since they were affected by this? I mean, listen, Trump, we saw, we saw it in real time, right? The anger. I mean, the Donald Trump, you know, yelling to cameras, attacking the attorney general, attacking the judge. Part of the reason why he got a gag order in this case was because of the, the vitriol that Donald Trump had against these individuals throughout the proceedings. The decision yesterday in New York, you may have read about it. Crooked judge, crooked judge. He's a crooked judge. Eric Trump told me in a brief phone interview that he felt the attorney general and the judge were living in an alternate reality, said it was an insane decision, a total joke. Donald Trump Jr. making the comment that, look, depending on where you live and who's the elected prosecutors affects it. So in their case, they're Republicans. New York's Democrat attorney general. That's what happened here. Now, that's really important. So just to stick there for a second with mm -hmm. me, Brad, that plays into Donald Trump's campaign slogan of this year, right? Everything is about politics and the court merging those two. Well, and that kind of leads me to my last question, John, because there's like the there's the financial stuff that he's dealing with, but there's also the political stuff. You could argue that maybe there's a political upside to all this. As we go towards the South Carolina primary, is he on 
weaker footing or is it like stronger footing or is it the same as it ever was because he's Donald Trump? You know, Ron DeSantis had a line at some point over the course of the primaries, and it was, you know, these indictments are helping Donald Trump. Because remember, Ron DeSantis, you know, this time last year in some polling was beating Donald Trump. Now he's not a candidate anymore. The only one that's left is Nikki Haley. There were 14 candidates and we've defeated a dozen of the fellas. I just have one more fella I got to catch up to. South Carolina is her home state. The polling there, Brad, makes it look like Donald Trump is going to beat Nikki Haley in that state, as he's done so far in the two previous, three previous contests that we've had. So I just think that for the moment, though it's hurting his bank account, though it's driving his business off a cliff, it is the train that's a chugging to get Donald Trump back to the White House every time one of these criminal cases, uh, civil cases, any of them, any of them hit Donald Trump, it just makes him stronger. The only little point of reality I would give though, because I didn't think this is important, right? Everybody talks about, well, if he wins, a lot of this goes away. Well, that's true, right? The federal cases, the special counsel cases, they do go away. But this Because ju the Justice Department usually, they don't indict sitting presidents, they don't prosecute sitting well, presidents. Well, that and it's called little thing pardon, right? He can make it go away because he's the president, right? It's never been tested, but you know, a lot of things have never happened before in the last few years. Here we are. But back to this case Friday night, this is a ruling by a New York state judge. Unless he decided to run for governor of New York, can't pardon himself. And if he loses on appeal, ruling stands, Brad. And that is the next step here is he'll appeal, of course. But like you said, hundreds of millions of dollars on the line. And even in this time of this appeal, he's not going to be able to run that company anyway. All right, John Santucci, thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. Next up on Start Here, Vladimir Putin is famously vindictive, but even Russians were shocked to think he might do this. A new potential chapter in political violence after the break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Vladimir Putin does not have a ton of well-known political challengers. Not many break through, perhaps because several of the ones that have, have ended up dead. A radiation trail has been left across London from Mr. Litvinenko's home. In 2006, a prominent Putin critic named Alexander Litvinenko became violently ill when someone put radioactive poison in his tea. Each day for him was like 10 years. He became older. This is a guy who once worked inside Russian intelligence who had fled the country as he accused Russian forces of staging terror attacks to help Putin get elected. Now he was dead. Everybody who are against him 
must be very careful. Boris Nemtsov was killed way closer to home. Nemtsov had worked under Putin's predecessor, Boris Yeltsin. Some thought he might one day take over again. Nemtsov became a harsh critic, organizing protests and exposing massive high-level corruption in Russia. Well, he was shot in the head while crossing a bridge in Moscow within view of the Kremlin. Just last year, you might remember the paramilitary leader Yevgeny Prigozhin, who led his troops on a march toward Moscow in a potential coup attempt. He was killed when his plane was blown out of the sky by an explosion. But among Putin's opponents, perhaps no one had inspired as much hope, as much reverence, as Alexei Navalny. Navalny! In a country large and beholden to oligarchs who were likened to mob bosses, Navalny was an anti-corruption lawyer. He inspired rallies not often seen in Putin's Russia, despite legal threats and physical attacks. He's been publicly beaten and even once nearly blinded when someone sprayed green liquid in his face. He continued to challenge Putin's power. He tried to run against him for the presidency before being told that he couldn't because of criminal charges many saw as bogus. Well, this weekend, after poisonings and arrests, we learned Navalny has died in a Russian prison. ABC's Patrick Rival was based in Moscow for years. He joins us this morning. Patrick, what do we know about Navalny's death? Hi, Brad. Um, we know very little about his death so far. We learned on Friday a, a short statement came out from Russia's prison service saying after going for a walk, he lost consciousness and then died. They claim that they tried to resuscitate him, but were unable to. And so far, that's pretty much all we know, in part because they are so far withholding his body. They're refusing to hand over his body to his mother. His elderly mother has flown to this Arctic prison and is attempting to get her son's body back. But so far, they keep coming up with more and more excuses for why they won't hand it over. And so while we haven't seen his body, while we haven't gotten any readouts from the government, like you said, I guess it's difficult to say, but safe to assume he was killed, assassinated? Is that the working theory at this point? So his team say without question that he was murdered. They don't know how. Thank you. Thank you so much. His wife was at the Munich security conference and she got up and she said, that Putin should be held personally responsible. I want Putin and everyone around Putin, Putin's friends, his government, to know that they will bear responsibility for what they did to our country, to my family and to my husband. Just the day before we discovered that Navalny had died, he appeared um, in court via video link. There was a court hearing that he had to attend. He appeared in good spirits, he appeared in good health, he was laughing and joking. <laughs> he was even making the judge and the prosecutor in the courtroom laugh, as, as he often tries to. And then a day later, he was pronounced dead. And obviously the suspicions are immediately there because, quite simply, the Kremlin already tried to murder him. Navalny fell violently ill on his flight to Moscow. Passengers recording the sound of his moaning. They tried to kill him in 2020 with a nerve agent. He nearly died on that occasion. He was only saved by German doctors. His team found traces of a Novichok nerve agent on an empty water bottle. His wife and team managed to get him out of the country and get him to Germany where he was saved. So I think, you know, from the from the moment that he was arrested when he decided to go back to Russia. 
there was this fear that, of course, they would try and do it again. Right. You almost kept expecting him to be killed for years. And the fact that he wasn't almost showed how powerful he was. So I I guess that makes me wonder, though, Patrick, what changed? Why kill him now and not then? I think simply once the war in Ukraine happened, once Putin crossed that line, we ended up in a completely different world. Announcing what Putin called the start of a military special operation, in his words, to demilitarize Ukraine. I think, you know, for example, Navalny didn't believe that the war was going to happen. He, like most of us, was stunned when it began. And it was just simply, the regime was different to what he thought he was dealing with in some ways. It was much more ideologically driven and much more violent. And, you know, the, it's night and day in Russia in terms of freedom of, of, of speech since the war. The Kremlin has driven all free media out of the country. The Kremlin has driven all opposition figures either out of the country or jailed them. There is no longer really any kind of freedom of dissent in Russia. I mean, even since he, he, Navalny has died, we've seen people leaving flowers outside these monuments to political repression. And there are you know, very heavy police presences there. We see riot police and people are dragged off immediately. The atmosphere there is, is much more repressive than the years where we saw Navalny leading these protests. I remember I saw a protest several years ago where they had convicted Navalny on these politically motivated charges and it looked like he was going to prison. Several hundred people blocked the road up to the Kremlin and they let him go, which is unimaginable now. Obviously, it's completely unimaginable that they would, would let him out. Um, but he, he understood that as well. You know, he, he consciously chose to come back and people asked him all the time, you knew you were going to be arrested. Why did you come back? And he seemed, he said that he used to get a bit annoyed with the question because quite simply, he said, you know, if my convictions amount to anything, I have to be in Russia. I am Russian. It's my country. And if I'm going to have any hope of changing it, I have to come back. And so he he did. Well, and so then this comes as Russia's elections. Like Russia has elections next month, right? Putin is expected to be reelected, almost orchestrated as such. I mean, would this conceivably have any impact on it? I mean, I think... If he was murdered, there's a question, right, was this related even to the elections? Elections are a moment of uncertainty, even in Russia, not because we know what we, we doubt what the outcome might be, but simply because it makes the whole country think about the state of the country and, and the politics there. Mm. And it's just a moment of where there can be cracks, you know. And Navalny had, had encouraged people to take part in the election by basically backing any candidate who wasn't Putin and basically trying to undercut Putin's legitimacy. And there was a plan there in some ways there appears to still be a plan for that to happen. He is a very strong person, and I think all of Russia is suffering because we lost such a hero. Will it affect it in the sense that people might protest on the day? I think I think some people will. I think people will be brave and protest. But I think when we look at the numbers of people who are going out, the risks are so high now. You will You will be arrested. You might well be jailed. You'll probably lose your job. The crackdown is so intense. And now, of course, their hope has also been snuffed out to a great degree because he was seen as this symbol of democracy in Russia. He was this seen as this hope that Russia could become a free country again, a modern free country, not going back to the worst years of Soviet rule. And he's gone. Yeah, the more you hear from people on the ground in Russia, the more you can tell that this was 
not just the leader of a movement of people. He was almost the symbol of that this movement could continue. The fact that he was alive meant you could still have a voice like this in Russia. And that voice appears to have been snuffed out. Uh, Patrick Rival, covering Moscow for years now. Thank you so much. Thanks, bro. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, when Paris put in their bid for the Olympics, did they stop to think, wait, don't all of our workers leave town that month? One last thing is next. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. And one last thing. The Olympics are going to be in Paris later this year. And think about how wonderfully French that'll be. The opening ceremonies will literally be on the River Seine. Croissants will be served at the Olympic Village. And this was just announced. The Olympic medals will be made out of chunks of the Eiffel Tower. Uh, and in the center, you can see that something is different. It's made they actually will have little pieces of the Eiffel Tower um, as part of them. Uh, and it's not its not um, bits that they've had to chip away. It's apparently... Are these structural? Uh, should I worry, Inez? The Eiffel Tower is falling apart. Uh, no, it's its little bits of metal that apparently um, came off during renovations, recent renovations. So we're all good. That's ABC's foreign correspondent, Inez de la Quatera, who's based in Paris. And she says even if the tower is not going to fall down, the workforce that supports it claims they're about to collapse. They just started what is expected to be a one-day strike. And they are demanding, essentially, that Paris City Hall officials immediately review the financial management for the Eiffel Tower. So they say... That's right. Today, there's about to be a one-day strike at the Tour Eiffel. The workers say there's simply not enough funding for the maintenance they need. In fact, this is their second strike in the last couple months. That's the head of the Eiffel Tower Union, which is, yes, a thing, and really speaks to a bigger question. What happens when you bring the world's most sprawling sporting event to a country that loves a labor stoppage? I am half French, but I was even shocked to discover it when I moved to Paris uh, roughly three years ago now. So, um, yeah, it seems like every other month they're they're protesting something new. It's just part of the culture here. Um, and we just Inez says it. that that you know, culture, along with the specter of the Olympics, has given labor unions even more courage than usual. Workers are being asked to work in what are usually vacation months, July and August, and Olympic organizers really need Paris to function during that time. That equals leverage. So French police, for instance, is going to be uh, getting bonuses. Uh, and other public se- sector workers are, are also likely to be getting some uh, bonuses. So we know uh, nurses, for instance, train drivers, these are uh, you know, workers whose unions are pushing for extra pay in part because they'd be skipping their July and August holidays, which are really sacred here in France. People get five weeks. Plus, even if Parisians always jealously guard their time, there's something extra in the air right now. 
we just saw farmers across France launch a series of roadblocks that's become known as the tractor protests. Workers are angry, and here comes what? One of the most glittering corporate-sponsored events on Earth. For a second, the famed used booksellers on the Seine were almost told they'd have to clear the banks for the opening ceremonies. No booksellers allowed there. Now they've been told they will be allowed to stay at work. The workers at the Eiffel Tower, however, will wait and see if they get a fresh offer, if not medals, for their efforts. I really feel like they should cancel the 10K or one of the long-distance running events and just replace it with stair-climbing contest up the Eiffel Tower. First one to the top wins. I'm telling you, it would be a hit. Hey, cool news, by the way. Start Here has been nominated for an Ambi. It's kind of like the Oscars for podcasting. We're up for the Best News Podcast. Equally excited for our fellow ABC pods. Reclaimed, The Forgotten League is up for Best Sports Show, and Disney Frozen Forces of Nature is up for Best Podcast for Kids. So make sure you give those a listen if you haven't already. I'm Brad Milky. See you tomorrow. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.